0: Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. As the public and private responses to COVID-19 continue, Dr. Katie Foss comes forward with Constructing the Outbreak, Epidemics in Media and Collective Memory, a forthcoming book from University of Massachusetts Press course, this book was a long time in the making and is not a response to the coronavirus specifically, but an academic analysis of how the media have conveyed information about epidemics and pandemics over the years. These include outbreaks of typhoid, diphtheria, influenza, smallpox, and yellow fever, among others. Constructing the outbreak after this.
1: Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. An MTSU professor's visit to the United Nations will help her enlighten her students about the impact of homelessness on society at home and abroad. Dr. Sandra Poirier, a professor in the Department of Human Sciences, Nutrition and Food Science Program, attended the 58th session of the UN's Commission for Social Development in February in New York. The priority theme was affordable housing and social protection systems for all to address homelessness. In nine days of panel discussions, forums, debates, and other events related to the theme, Poirier and her colleagues examine the issue through the lenses of poverty, climate change, income inequality, global conflict, and the need for worldwide partnerships. And an in-kind donation of more than $2.5 million by Petroleum Experts Limited will assist MTSU Geosciences undergraduate students in becoming more proficient at geomapping. It marks the second major in-kind donation by the Edinburgh-Scotland-based company in two years. The donation on the heels of P-Tex's $2.18 million in-kind gift last year means MTSU students are recipients of more than $4.7 million in software licenses that can help strengthen their resumes. For MTSU news at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Welcome back, Katie.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: For openers, what are your impressions of how the news media in the United States have covered the coronavirus pandemic to date?
2: Well, first of all, I want to make sure that we don't clump all media together, that I think we need to distinguish between professional journalists and what individual citizens are posting on their own social media pages. Uh, I would say if we look at mainstream media's coverage, it, it's been diverse and it's been as thorough as it can be, uh, offering a lot of different perspectives uh, as we gain more information and as, as the moments change, uh, if we look at coverage back from January until uh, today.
0: Was it Immediate enough? In other words, did uh, journalists jump on this story in a timely manner?
2: Um, I think, as we saw with Ebola in 2014, I think that there's always too much of a delay in covering uh, diseases as well as other issues that are abroad. Uh, When we pretend that this won't affect us or pretend that because we think it doesn't affect us that it doesn't matter, uh, that's incredibly problematic, that we need to be covering public health issues from a global perspective all the time, and not just when we think that the threat has come, quote, here.
0: What have you learned about the way that journalists have covered prior public health crises involving disease outbreaks in the course of your research for this book?
2: What I found really interesting is that across media platforms and across historical moments, there's a similar cycle that occurs with media's coverage of epidemics. Uh, and there's also a, a separation between how local media covers a local epidemic and how national media would cover the same story. Uh, so we see uh, what we're seeing right now uh, in the past, uh, For example, if we look at the media coverage of even yellow fever in 1793, I mean, you start with very little media coverage presenting the few cases that emerge as just uh, isolated incidents, not something that we have to worry about until we start to see more official declarations of what's going on uh, typically that start out as dismissive again as don't worry we're on, this is not going to be something that's going to affect people at the macro level uh and then we start to shift into hey, this is a problem. This is something that we need to worry about. Uh, This is about to become a crisis situation until we escalate to that crisis point where you start to see, again, in a similar pattern than what we're seeing now, different entities closing down, Um, first with the schools and then later churches, uh, restrictions on public gatherings, theaters, uh, and other places where people congregate.
0: So at the uh, local level, the pattern is that it's treated as simply individuals with anecdotal information rather than the beginnings mm-hmm. of possibly something greater. It's almost, it sounds like uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's Five Stages of Grief. First mm-hmm. there's denial, and uh, yeah. and then we go through the process.
2: Nome, Alaska is a great example because uh, in 1925, there was a, th- a threatened outbreak of diphtheria in Nome, Alaska, a very isolated place. Uh, and uh, if you look at the local newspaper, They really do a lot to try to reassure people that it's going to be okay, that that we do have control of the situation. If we compare that to the national coverage of the same story, it's much more in crisis mode. It's save the people of Nome. uh, Otherwise, they're doomed if we don't get to action right now and trying to assist them. And and this was in the means of, of... uh, the dog sled relay that would bring an antiserum very much more in a crisis versus uh, a kind of a calm reassurance and i and i think some of that is just a strategy to make sure that people don't panic at least in the same way that they would if you if you keep it in crisis mode
0: is there a contrast with the way the public relations community, both governmentally and in the private sector, approach communications about widespread disease outbreaks?
2: Yes and no. I would say that you still have that balance of of reassurance with, uh, okay, it's time to take it seriously, but it's been interesting, at least in the private sector now, how we seem to see the same message over and over again. An acknowledgement of the outbreak, an acknowledgement of the threat, but still, many businesses are going to stay open because that's how they make money and that it's an individual's choice to visit those places versus, I would say, the pu- in the public sector or thinking about especially how the government or local government's handling, for example, school closings, where there's not a choice. We need to cancel school for the, for the sake of the public good.
0: I would imagine that the the challenge for them would be mm-hmm. to uh, communicate a sense of urgency. They need to do something immediately without communicating a sense of panic. There mm-hmm. being a difference between the two.
2: And, you know, that's really the struggle uh, because there is a big difference between, okay, we're canceling school just as a precaution, but uh, it's probably going to be okay. I mean, I think that if you give kind of a much of a weaker message, then people are still going to gather in public areas. At the, at the same point, we can't go the other way and say it's time to panic at every little sniffle and the apocalypse is coming. Mm-hmm. Right? There's got to be a gray area in there. And, and it's hard to hit that sweet spot. I really do think there is that it is.
0: Time for a break. We'll be back. This is MTSU on the record.
3: Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There is no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Experiential Learning Scholars Program at MTSU gives students a chance to go outside the classroom and obtain hands-on experience in their chosen fields of study. They'll have the opportunity to give something back to the community through service learning as they gain acceptance for graduate study. Students should be able to select EXL-designated courses from major requirements and general studies requirements to complete the 16 to 18 hours of EXL coursework. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com.
0: Dr. Katie Foss is our guest from the School of Journalism and Strategic Media. Her forthcoming book is Constructing the Outbreak, Epidemics in Media and Collective Memory. There is a a documentary that was done by the PBS uh, series American Experience about the uh, 1918 Spanish Mm -hmm. flu outbreak. And among the things it emphasizes is the fact that there were only newspapers as a means of mass communication Mm -hmm. at that time, if you don't count the telegraph. Has the proliferation of technology-driven media in our time helped or hurt crisis communications during outbreaks?
2: I would actually say both. Um, So there's scholarly research done that has shown that Twitter has actually helped identify uh, localized epidemics, especially like, or or I should say outbreaks, because we're talking smaller scale, for H1N1. So it can help detect patterns in disease, but at the same time, the proliferation of social media, I think, has heightened the panic, that I don't think that, you know, mainstream news media are really the ones who are heightening the panic as much as individual people sharing misinformation on their posts, panicking about running out of toilet paper and thus spurring others to do the same uh, in a way that's not coming from official sources, that's not coming from a professional journalist.
0: Back in the day, as they say, not only the 1918 outbreak, but outbreaks of diseases before that. Was there a tendency on the part of people who were, shall we say, not as educated or science savvy to blame these diseases on something else rather than on the invisible germs that they couldn't see without benefit of a microscope?
2: It depends on the era. Uh, So I study diseases before and after the acceptance uh, and domination of the germ theory, Uh, But there's always been a bit of a mystery around disease, especially a mystery around epidemics. We've seen numerous times in which disease has been based on different racial groups, uh, that it's been used to underscore anti-immigration policies. Uh, We've definitely seen blame on on, uh, supernatural entities or an association between someone's actions and the fact that that they got sick. Uh, So we definitely have, I mean, especially when things are unknown, when things are scary, uh, when people are afraid, we tend to see more assignments of blame. And I still think that we're seeing this here, Uh, even though we know that this is caused by a virus and we know what kind of virus, which I think is a great advantage to some of the epidemics of the past. We're still seeing uh, different messages in which people are distancing themselves from other people that are sick, Uh, certainly with all the, the stigma about the coronavirus emerging from China, even though, again, it has nothing to do with the people of China. It has nothing to do with the government of China, but we have seen a lot of different ways in which people have assigned blame at different levels for that. And I think it's a human tendency to just find the ways that you're different from someone else in order to make yourself feel better. It doesn't make it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's highly stigmatizing and problematic, but it's nonetheless something that we see over and over again.
0: AIDS was initially called the gay plague, as yes. if all the homosexuals in the country got together in a room and decided to, at a convention right. that they were going to foist something on people. It was uh, it was absurd. A, a disease is not a respecter of race, creed, color, right. gender, or national origin.
2: Oh, well, absolutely. And uh, like you said, a big reason that AIDS uh, was kept out of the public mainstream for so long is that it was marginalized and dismissed as a disease only affecting one particular already marginalized community.
0: How have the media covered people who are all too ready to exploit outbreaks, the war profiteers of public health crises who try to sell snake oil (laughs) or whatever as a cure for smallpox or or whatever the case may be? Mm -hmm. Somebody's always looking to make a buck off of situations like this.
2: Certainly before there was a lot of regulation of pharmaceuticals and there was a lot of snake oil and we didn't have a lot of effective medicines, people could claim anything they wanted cured disease. Uh, Even, I mean, doctors did that over again. For example, Dr. Benjamin Rush patented his own powders that he sold at the same time he was treating patients for yellow fever. I actually think that the news coverage of this particular pandemic has been really positive as far as calling out people trying to make a a profit. Um, For example, it was a person who was trying to profit off of selling toothpaste and pretending that it cured disease. Uh, And then as we've seen with the social media posts about those who are trying to profit off of hand sanitizer Mm -hmm. sold in bulk, uh, we're calling people out. And I think actually social media has worked in the favor of, Mm -hmm. of let's expose the scammers as opposed to let them get away with it and use the forum for their own gain. It's uh,
0: amazing how much stuff back before the creation of the uh, Food and Drug Administration that Mm -hmm. was peddled Uh, was uh, high percentage alcohol content Mm -hmm. so that if it didn't make you feel better, at least it would numb you to the point where you didn't care. You'd still die of typhoid fever or whatever the case may be.
2: Yes. And uh, aside from alcohol, another strategy was just to give you some kind of herb that would make something happen with your body. Uh, So for yellow fever, it was very common to give... uh, give medicines, uh, so to speak, that would either induce vomiting or give you diarrhea, which is the last thing someone with yellow fever needed in the moment.
0: You said uh, there was a, an outbreak of yellow fever in the 1700s, is that in right? In 1793
2: in Philadelphia, when Philadelphia was the United States capital. It's a particularly interesting moment because George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson and a lot of the the founding fathers were in Philadelphia serving in government at that moment.
0: We yet we had another yellow fever outbreak during the building of the Panama Canal. Mm-hmm. So did we learn anything as a society between the two outbreaks, Walter Reed notwithstanding?
2: Not a whole lot except for documenting symptoms. And there was also a huge yellow fever outbreak in Memphis as well. But really, it wasn't until uh, the Panama Canal that, that Walter Reed and his commission figured out that the little tiny mosquito was making everybody sick.
0: Why do some crises get major attention and others don't? I ask this because when Dr. Elliot Altman of our own Department of Biology Mm -hmm. here at MTSU was working on the Zika virus, Mm. I did a radio program with him and a story that got picked up absolutely nowhere, absolutely nowhere. And now this particular situation is getting massive attention, but... Zika, Ebola, H1N1, they all deserved our attention. Yes, they did. Why do some get attention and others don't?
2: I think that's an intriguing question because some of it has to do with uh, that feeling of proximity. Does it feel like we're going to be, uh, you know, threatened by the particular virus Does it feel new? Does it feel othered in some way? Or I don't like to use the word foreign, but I I think that that makes sense here. Does it feel like a new threat, one that we haven't faced before? Do we have evidence of what it's going to do? Now, we would think that Ebola would fit the criteria of most of those things, but I think because it didn't become widespread here in the United States, again we have that ethnocentricity that drives the media, and in turn drives consumers as far as uh, how much it, it feels salient, and relevant. There's uh, this
0: feeling that it's happening to those people over there, right? Consequently, it can't happen to me over here.
2: Absolutely. That ethnic othering that we see in a lot of those type stories. Uh, with H1N1, I think that most people dismissed it as something that felt too familiar. Uh, so it felt like the regular seasonal flu and not something that could be as dangerous as in reality it definitely could have been.
0: We'll take another break here, and we'll be right back. This is MTSU on the Record.
3: The Middle East-centered MTSU seeks to promote greater understanding of the politics, history, and culture of this vitally important region of the world. Its mission includes the promotion of outreach programs and faculty research. The center sponsors lectures by Middle East experts and scholarly exchanges. We're especially pleased to offer an interdisciplinary minor in Middle East studies with courses in Arabic and Hebrew. This is Dr. Alan Hibbard, center director.
1: For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote
3: awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com.
0: Dr. Katie Foss is the author of Constructing the Outbreak, Epidemics in Media and Collective Memory from University of Massachusetts Press, which will be out sometime later this year, we trust. Mm -hmm.
2: We're working hard on that.
0: What outbreak in history intrigued you the most as you did your research for this book?
2: I would say that I got the most into the polio epidemic of 1952. Uh, And here's why. It was the, the largest outbreak of polio in history, but yet received less coverage and uh, less of a public response than the previous polio epidemics.
0: Despite the fact that we had already had a president of the United States who was paralyzed as a result of polio, Franklin Delano Roosevelt.
2: Yes, and the the great success of the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, uh, better known now as the March of Dimes, uh, which was hugely successful in creating a decades worth of public health campaigns across media platforms to raise money uh, to help uh, with polio rehabilitation, as well as to fund the research that would lead to the vaccine. So what's really fascinating about the 1952 epidemic is that, first of all, it's stretched across the United States. Uh, but what's also interesting is the timing. And this is why I don't think it's gotten much, much attention, both in its moment as well as uh, in our collective memory. Because at the same time that this epidemic was hitting across the United States, Jonas Salk was very, very close to uh, figuring out the vaccine and, in fact, was testing his vaccine on a small group of people Uh, that would, of course, later lead to his massive trials demonstrating the success of his vaccine. But because of uh, the tone had changed by then, the tone was we're almost there. Scientists are going to get it. Uh, They were trying out this other vaccine that would just reduce the severity of polio, uh, which was called the Gamma Goblin vaccine trials of that summer. There was a lot of attention on research that took away from the severity of the epidemic itself.
0: And the media were communicating the fact that Dr. Salk was working on it and that he was close to achieving his goal.
2: Absolutely. That and, again, this gamma goblin vaccine trials. And there was a lot of attention given to these vaccine trials, which, again, did not prevent polio, but just reduced uh, temporarily reduced the severity of the epidemic. A lot of focus on that and less focus on what was going on in the moment. Polio became really bad that summer. More than 57,000 cases occurred in the United States. And With this particular epidemic, there was a larger percentage of people who were paralyzed. So about 36% of the people in this epidemic who contracted the disease either had temporary or permanent paralysis, which was a shift from earlier epidemics. But again, it just didn't get quite the response that we saw in some of the earlier epidemics of polio. For example, the Minnesota State Fair still went on that year, even though it had been canceled in previous years due to polio.
0: The Salk vaccine was officially first given to the public in what year?
2: Uh, So he announced it in 1953. He presented his findings, his preliminary findings, Uh, Then in 1954, they started the massive vaccine trials.
0: And then later on, Dr. Albert Sabin came forth with the Mm -hmm. oral vaccine, which is what I took when I was Mm -hmm. a child. It was administered in the schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, My principal gave it to me. I remember it distinctly. 1952, 53, 54. This is an interesting time Mm -hmm. because... Either the baby boom had started or we were on the cusp of the baby boom. Yes. And the American population was about to grow exponentially. And Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of parents uh, who were having children like me along this time were very concerned with their children's health. And Mm -hmm. it was, after all, labeled infantile paralysis. Yes. So the timing is interesting.
2: It really is. And so it, while there wasn't that as much attention as there should have been to this particular epidemic, we certainly had decades of media coverage teaching parents and the general population about the dangers of polio. We had decades of photos of kids and adults in iron lungs, of kids learning to walk again with crutches and braces, and just the visual power of the NFIP's campaigns really set up for participation in the vaccine trials and a willingness to subject your, your child to these vaccine trials, uh, even though we might have not have seen the same response um, in other moments in time.
0: Do we have to, with each new mutation of a germ or a virus or a disease, have to re-educate ourselves all over again as a society about how to respond. I'm wondering if we learn anything from the outbreaks of the past, and I'm hoping your book will help educate us in that regard.
2: I would hate to say that, yes, we do, but apparently we do, because most people living today have never experienced this, at least in developing countries. And unfortunately, much of our outbreak history has been written out of history. Some social studies, textbooks that I know of, uh, have omitted the influenza pandemic of 1918 1919 We forget these stories of the past, and we don't uh, at least accurately depict them in popular culture, so we forget what can happen with disease. The reality of some of the past epidemics are much more terrifying than what's been depicted in a fictional way in contagion and outbreak and other stories.
0: What was the consumer response to outbreaks of yore by comparison to the current consumer response to the coronavirus. I mean, were people going to grocery stores and hoarding food or anything of that nature? Were they stocking up on cleaning supplies when they found out that there was an outbreak of typhoid or smallpox or whatever?
2: Like yellow fever shut down Philadelphia. There was no markets. There was no food. People were dependent on either what they had at their own houses or what a volunteer committee set up by the mayor could provide. It's harder to say, I would say, and some of the other outbreaks that are more recent, but not as well documented because if we don't have the stories of regular people, if we don't have the diaries, if we don't have pamphlets they produce, we really don't know exactly what happened. We don't have memes and social media posts kind of guiding us. I do know that in the influenza pandemic of 1918-1919 in Lawrence, Kansas, they were still selling food. I know that the pharmacies were still open because they continued to advertise throughout the outbreak, making claims like onions will cure your your virus. So
0: <laughs> Yeah, it might help with some Social yes.
2: The only shortage that I've really noted actually was Vicks VapoRub in right. influenza because that's what really made that profitable product. Uh, there was a shortage of VapoRub because everybody thought it would cure disease and probably was one of the very few things that it felt like you could do something with in, in that time period.
0: So in documenting the outbreaks of the future, do you think that oral histories of average everyday Americans are going to be as important as the documents and statements from the scientific community.
2: Absolutely. And I would say if we can still scrape our data so that we can save the posts and look how things unfolded that we can, you know, examine uh, the bo- the blogs of right now. If we can examine all the different material that people are producing, if we can look at the academic response to going online, I mean all of that is going to be incredibly important in helping us conceptualize really what this pandemic was and to different groups of people, and not just Americans. I would say that the materials coming out of Italy right now, the warning videos are going to be just as important in telling this story to future generations.
0: Dr. Katie Foss, author of Constructing the Outbreak, Epidemics in Media and Collective Memory, not available yet, but will be from University of Massachusetts Press later this year. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back.
3: The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, Go to mtsunews.com.
0: MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Gina Fan has the middle moment.
3: The cast and crew of the university's big spring musical, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, prepared for months for their April production with internationally recognized children's theater professor, Yetta Holliday as assistant director, only to learn three weeks before opening night that it had to be canceled amid the ongoing COVID-19 virus threat. MTSU senior Virginia Tips of Murfreesboro, the play's director who's ready to graduate in May, prepared for her final MTSU production the same way she began her student career. I've gotten lucky enough to do
0: my first and final project over the last four years with Yetta. And it is such a unique opportunity because she has told us before that children's theater is a, like a sacred opportunity to affect these children's lives in such a huge way in ways that we don't really think about a lot as adults in other types of theater. But I think she brings that into this process wholeheartedly right. every night. And we strive to carry that on with her as well. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna
3: Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU On The Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University is produced by the university's marketing and communications office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.